Well, last week we looked at our introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, this morning we're going to dive in to verse 3, the first beatitude. So open your Bibles to uh, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5. Blessed are poor, the poor in spirit, Jesus says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's right. How many like good news? Not everybody. I like good news. We come to the Lord's table. It's, it's a testimony and expression of good news, among other things, isn't it? Well, I have good news for you this morning. The good news, very simply, is that God desires to save people, to save people from their lostness. God desires to save people and give them a new life, a new heart. He wants to give us the ability and the power to actually obey him. It's not left up to us. He provides everything. And most of all, the good news is that God desires to provide true happiness. Isn't that delightful? Very often, people don't associate God with happiness. We associate God with duty and obedience and those kinds of things. But rarely do we necessarily associate him with happiness. If and when a person comes to Jesus Christ, it's only then that that person can indeed discover, find, experience true, true happiness. Blessed are the poor in spirit, he says in verse 3. That word blessed means happy. There are a number of synonyms. It means fortunate. It means blissful. Can you imagine? Blissful are the poor in spirit. We want to begin to kind of plumb the depths of that and understand what he's talking about. The idea behind that is that we would experience an inward contentedness. Truly, truly content. At peace. And that contentedness is not affected by any external circumstance. This is something that God provides. That's the kind of happiness that God desires for his children. A state of joy, a state of well-being that does not depend on temporal, temporary circumstances. It seems like so much of our life revolves around our circumstances, doesn't it? It seems like so much turmoil, so much uncertainty determines our response to, to how we live. When in fact, if our life is really, truly revolving around him, then the circumstances don't quite get to us as they would normally. Does that make sense to you? This blessedness that uh, Jesus speaks of is also something that's characteristic of God. This is part of his nature. And it can be a characteristic of people only, however, as they share in the very nature of God. In other words, if you are a born-again Christian, truly, the Bible tells us that we participate in his divine nature. 
So you and I now become one with Christ. We participate in the very nature of God. And the things that are characteristic of God become more and more characteristic of us as we mature and become more and more like him. Does that make sense? When people read the Sermon on the Mount, just kind of a cursory reading of the Sermon on the Mount, they can get a glimpse of kingdom standards, they get a glimpse of kingdom blessings. But only those who belong to the kingdom, and here's where the great difference is, only those who belong to the kingdom have the promise of receiving and actually experiencing those blessings. If you're not a a, a truly born-again Christian, there's no way you're going to experience the blessings that God has promised and his purpose for us. To be blessed is not a a superficial feeling of well-being based on, again, circumstance. Again, so many times we... We find ourselves caught up in our circumstances and our emotional life uh, and our inner life is dependent upon our circumstance. If things go well, I'm feeling good. How are you today? Well, I'm okay. Why? Well, because things are okay. Uh, and that's our default position. That's, that's how we live in the flesh. When in fact, God wants us to understand that this, this sense of well-being should not be dependent upon our circumstances Now, we already know that, don't we? But experiencing it is a whole other ballgame, isn't it? So this sense of well-being should be a deep, deep supernatural experience. After all, God is a supernatural being, and he's given us a supernatural sharing in his supernatural nature. Hence, our, our experience should be a supernatural experience, not just a natural experience. And again, this experience of contentedness is based on the fact that we are at peace with God. We, all, our life is right with Him. You can say, it is well with my soul. And if you understand that and know that, then you're experiencing that contentedness that He means for us to know and experience. Now, when you read the Beatitudes, they, quite frankly can seem paradoxical. By that I mean that the conditions that they describe and the corresponding blessings don't seem to match. By normal human standards, such things as humility, mourning, desire for righteousness, mercy, even persecution, these are not the stuff of which happiness is necessarily made in our normal human existence. To the natural man, and indeed to the immature and or carnal Christian, such happiness sounds like misery with another name. And in a way, happiness is misery with another name. Jesus teaches that misery endured for the right purpose endured for the, in the right way, is in fact the key to happiness. Now again, that, that is counterintuitive to our natural human nature, isn't it? Absolutely. The world says, happy are the rich. The world says, happy are the successful. The world says, happy are the popular, the glamorous, the famous. 
But the message of Jesus does not fit the world's standards. Because remember, his kingdom is not of this world. It's a whole different ballgame with Jesus. His way to happiness, which is the only way to true happiness, is by a much different route. Tragically, in, in, in contemporary popular Christianity, uh, there are many, many preachers and teachers and writers today passing off worldly philosophy in the name of Christianity. Uh, you read all the, the popular authors and popular books, and you listen to some of the more popular teaching on TV and radio and such, uh, and it's, just, it's, it's really worldly philosophy with a veneer of Christianity and some verses attached to it. And the sum and substance of much of that teaching is that faithfulness to Christ guarantees some things. It guarantees health. It guarantees wealth. It guarantees success. It guarantees prosperity. It guarantees prestige. But Jesus never taught those things, especially when you read the Sermon on the Mount. He warned that physical Worldly advantages most often limit true happiness. They're not the route to true happiness. They limit true happiness. The things of the world become, in fact, fuel for pride. The things of the world become fuel for lust, for self-satisfaction. These are the enemies not only of righteousness, but of true happiness. You cannot possibly be true, truly happy if you're lusting, if you're self-centered, if your life is, is uh, focused on uh, your, own, your own prideful issues. You can't possibly be truly happy. Jesus reminds us in the parable he teaches in Matthew 13, the parable of the soils, and that's a great, great parable. He tells us in verse 22, that the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. Unfruitful in the sense that there's no real joy. There is no real happiness in these things. In fact, the, the truth is choked out by those things. True blessedness, True happiness is on a higher level, on a higher level than anything in the world. And it is to that level that Jesus takes us in the Sermon on the Mount. As we embark on this study of the Sermon on the Mount in the next weeks and however long we're here, just remember, we're, Jesus is taking us to a higher and higher and higher level in his walk with us. He's leading us in a way that is truly going to lead to true happiness. And this is a completely new way of life. Completely new way. It's based on a complete new way of thinking. But more than that, it's based on a, on a new way of being. I be a new creation. If you are a true Christian, you be a new Christian. You be a new being, right? The old things have passed away. A whole new life has opened up to us. The Beatitudes in addition to being somewhat paradoxical, the Beatitudes are also progressive. 
The point is that Jesus doesn't just give them to us in a haphazard manner, in some random order. No, each leads to the other in logical succession. Being poor in spirit reflects the right attitude we should have to our sinful condition. That's what it's all about. This is, this is my response, my reaction to my sinful condition. I'm poor in spirit. And that then should lead, lead me to mourn, to be meek and gentle, to hunger and thirst for righteousness, to be merciful, pure in heart, and have a peacemaking spirit. And as those qualities mark our lives more and more and more, you'll find that your life will in fact be a rebuke to the world and that in turn will bring persecution from the world but you will be a light in the world. Do you see that? So these things are are, are progressive. They move from one to the other and this is the most foundational one, the very first beatitude. To be poor in spirit. What does that mean? Well, let's just start with the word poor. In the New Testament, there are two words in the Greek, two separate words that are translated poor. One word uh, means that you can be poor but still have some resources, like the widow in Luke chapter 21. Remember the widow who brought her her mites and, and, and left them in the offering in the temple there? And Jesus is on the side observing. She was poor. But that's not the word that's used here in Jesus when he talks about being poor in spirit. The word here doesn't simply mean poor. It means begging poor. You have to understand the difference. This is a radical difference. Begging poor. It's, used, it's the word that's used to describe the beggar Lazarus in Luke chapter 16. It's used to describe one who is completely dependent, completely dependent on support from others, having absolutely no means of self-support. We are poor beggars. We have no resources. Jesus is speaking of a spiritual poverty that corresponds to the material poverty of one who is, in fact, a a destitute beggar. So to be poor in spirit is to recognize our own spiritual poverty apart from God. We have nothing. We have nothing. It's to see oneself as we really are. Lost, hopeless, helpless. That's the challenge because most people don't see themselves as lost, hopeless, and helpless unless they are absolutely devastated. Isn't that true? But even then, they always have some resource available. They still don't see themselves as an absolute, utter beggar in that kind of poverty. Because we're we're not only fleshly humans, we're Americans. (laughs) We're taught to be self-sufficient. We grow up with that mentality. We are cursed with that blessing, aren't we? You see, apart from Jesus Christ, every person is spiritually destitute. Now, you might say, okay, I I understand that, I understand that. But until you 
you, and to realize that, it's hard for you to really understand your need for Christ in an experiential kind of way. No matter what your education level is, no matter what your, your uh, material social status might be, no matter what your accomplishments are, no matter what your religious knowledge may be, we are spiritually destitute. That's the point of the first beatitude. The poor in spirit are those who recognize their total spiritual destitution and their utter, absolute, complete dependence on God. I got nothing without you. I am lost. I'm hopeless. I'm helpless, God, without you. We realize that there are no saving resources in ourselves. And all we can hope for, indeed all we can beg for, is mercy and grace. We know that we have no spiritual merit and we can earn no spiritual reward in and of ourselves. We are absolutely destitute. That's the truth of us. That flies in the face of our human pride and arrogance, doesn't it? There's something down deep inside that says, no, no, I'm not that desperate. Yes, you are. We all are. You have to see that your pride, your pride must go. Self-assurance must go. We must realize that we stand empty-handed before God. And that is not a depressing thought. That is cause for rejoicing. When I realize and I understand and I see that I got nothing and I'm empty-handed before God, I am poised to receive what? The kingdom. That's cause for rejoicing. Not a depressing thought. Poor in spirit. The in spirit part. What does that mean? Well, as I understand it, it conveys the sense that the recognition of poverty is genuine. I genuinely recognize this poverty in spirit. It's not an act. It doesn't refer to outwardly acting like a spiritual beggar, but to actually recognize that I am a spiritual beggar. It is true humility, not mock humility. We all understand mock humility, don't we? We all understand what it means to act humbly as opposing to actually be humble. That phrase in spirit describes the person about whom the Lord speaks in Isaiah chapter 66. This is the one I esteem. How many would like to know that the Lord esteems you? Okay, not all hands go up, okay. I know it's early, but you know, you would think that everyone would want to know that the Lord esteems them. Well, who is the person that the Lord esteems? He tells us. The humble, the contrite in spirit, and the one who trembles at my word. Wow, that's the broken one. That's the one who realizes they got nothing. 
A similar example is in Luke chapter 18 when Jesus told the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Remember the Pharisee? They both went up to the temple and the Pharisee standing there and, and commending himself before God. He's actually, the, the word actually is he's praying to himself, talking to himself. He's saying, God, I thank you like I'm not all these other people and I tithe twice a week and I, I do this and that and so forth and And on the other hand, you have the tax collector who's standing at a distance and beating his breast and saying, Lord, I'm not worthy. And Jesus says of the two, he makes this value judgment. He says that the Pharisee was, in effect, proud in spirit. And the tax collector was poor in spirit. The contrast is clear. Remember when God called Moses to lead the Israelites out of Egypt? And Moses responded immediately by saying, yes, Lord, you've got the right man. I'm glad you called on me. No one could do it but me. God, you know that, and so therefore, here I am. I'm happy to serve. Did he do that? No, Moses backpedaled and backpedaled and backpedaled and backpedaled. He tried every which way to get out of the thing. That's a person, I submit to you, uh, who quite frankly uh, is, understands his unworthiness. And yet God could take that person and do mighty things with him and through him. Peter. Would these adjectives describe Peter? Aggressive? Was Peter aggressive, do you think? How about self-assertive? Might he even be proud? I think so. But when Jesus miraculously provided that great catch of fish, remember, they're in the boat, Peter's in the boat, and this giant catch of fish happens. Peter was overawed at that, and Peter confessed, God, this is great, I want to be able to do that. Is that what he said? No, what did Peter say? Go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. He began to see the contrast in who Jesus was and who he is. The Apostle Paul. Even after he became the Apostle Paul, recognized that nothing good lived in him that is in his sinful nature. He called himself the chief of sinners. He said that everything everything that, that accrued to me Philippians chapter 3, every accomplishment, everything credit, he says, I consider now as rubbish. He realized nothing was of any value, nothing, nothing, nothing at all he could claim. It was all rubbish. True poverty of spirit. Jesus puts poor in spirit first in the Beatitudes Because this is the foundation. This is the foundation. Humility, beloved, is the basic element in becoming a Christian. Matthew chapter 18. There's a marvelous marvelous scene where Jesus is uh, ministering. Let me find it here for you. Matthew chapter 18. He says, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Can't you just see that? 
They're jockeying for position. And then Jesus called a little child and had him stand among them. And he said, I tell you the truth. Unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now that doesn't, that doesn't fit with our normal human categories, does it? No, we, we try to get past our being like a little child. We want to be mature, and, 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 but we define maturity differently, typically, than the Jesus defines maturity. So that's a, that's a telling, telling story. You see, pride has no part in God's kingdom. We know that, we know that, we've heard that countless times, haven't we? Pride has no part in his kingdom. And yet, is pride ever with us? I mean, it's right there, isn't it? It's right there with us. But if you don't realize it, you won't, you won't be able to what? To battle it, to deal with it. Until a person surrenders their pride, he cannot enter enjoy the kingdom of heaven. You've got, it's an everyday issue, surrendering your pride, surrendering your pride. Someone once said that the door into God's kingdom is low and no one who stands tall will ever go through it. I thought that was very, very picturesque. You can't be filled until you're empty. You can't be made worthy until you recognize your unworthiness. You cannot live until you admit that you're dead. Simple. We cannot begin the Christian life without humility. And we cannot live the Christian life with pride. Just don't mix. God says in Proverbs 16, 5, He detests all the proud of heart. That ought to give us warning, every single one of us. Because there isn't single, there isn't anybody in this room who doesn't battle that stuff. Pride. You can't just one day say, okay, I'm humble. <laughs> and be done with it. No, 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 no. The very fact that you said you were humble is a problem. <laughs> you just lost it. There is such an emphasis today in contemporary Christianity, I think, on how to be happy how to be successful, how to overcome problems. <gasps> Go to the Christian bookstore and see all the how-to books. But you know, you will not find hardly a book written on how to empty yourself, on how to deny yourself, on how to pick up your cross and follow Jesus. Those aren't exactly at the top of the list of the bestsellers. And yet those are the things that we should be focusing on. Would you agree? I mean, that's what Jesus says. But we want to be, we're more concerned with how to overcome my problem. I had a young man talk to me uh, Friday night after the service. And he waited and waited until the, everybody went away. And he was the last person. He said, I said, uh, I said uh, uh, how can I help you? And he said, Pastor, I, I want to know how to, how to overcome jealousy. I said, first thing, you've got to become a Christian. Are you a Christian? Are you born again? He said, no. I said, no wonder. 
you got to get born again. So we got him born again. And we said, now, start reading your Bible. Start learning what it means to deny yourself. When you understand and begin to deny yourself, jealousy won't even be a problem. How many get it? Make sense? Why? Because the focus is no longer on you. You're jealous because the focus is on you. Being poor in spirit is the first beatitude because humility must precede everything else. Don't you love it when you have problems and difficulties and trials? Don't you love it? Don't you rejoice? What does the Bible say? It says rejoice. Why? Because those things are designed to get the focus off of us. We sit down and suck our thumbs. We say, poor me. What did I do wrong? What did I do to deserve this? It's not that you did anything to deserve it. It's that God is disciplining you, training you to grow you beyond yourself. That's cause for rejoicing. No one can receive the kingdom until he or she recognizes, quite frankly, that they're unworthy of the kingdom. In Revelation chapter 3, the church at Laodicea, they said of themselves proudly, I am rich. I have acquired wealth. I do not need a thing. And yet Jesus then responds to them and says, you do not realize that you are wretched. You're just the opposite of what you said. You are wretched. You are pitiful. You are poor. You're blind and you're naked. You can't get any worse. You see, where self is exalted, Christ cannot be. So we have to stop. We have to ask ourselves, where is where my exalting self? Even subtly, we are masters at exalting self, are we not? Masters at putting ourself first. We are not masters at denying ourselves. And where self is exalted, Christ cannot be. Where self is king, Christ cannot be. You can say all day long, Jesus is Lord, but if the self is exalted, he is not Lord, in fact, in your life. Until the proud in spirit become the poor in spirit, they cannot receive the king or inherit the kingdom. Now, if that's true, then how then do we become poor in spirit? How does that happen? Well, first of all, you have to realize that it doesn't begin with us. Becoming poor in spirit doesn't begin with us. It doesn't begin with anything that we can do or we can accomplish in our own power, nor does it involve us putting ourselves down. We're already down. We just have to recognize that fact. And simply being hopeless and helpless and in need is no virtue That's not God's will for us. His will is to get us out of that condition and into blessing. And the fulfillment of that goal depends on his sovereign, gracious work of humbling. So it starts with who? 
Becoming humble starts where? It starts with God. Humility is not a necessary human work to make us worthy. It is a necessary divine work to make us see that we are not worthy and cannot change our condition without God. Yet even though genuine humility is produced by the Lord as an element of the work of salvation, it is also commanded of us. James chapter 4, verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Boy, it's hard to wait, huh? It's hard to wait. Hard to humble yourself before the Lord and wait for him to lift you up. I want to lift up. Peter puts it this way. 1 Peter 5, 5. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. So you see, the Lord perfectly harmonizes his commands for humbling with his sovereign work of humbling. Both go on at the same time. That's another one of these things I call antinomies. You can't resolve them. They go on simultaneously. Well, what can we do to humble ourselves? If we're commanded to humble ourselves, what can we do to humble ourselves? First, get the focus off yourself and on to God. Shift the focus from yourself to God. Be conscious, be aware. The writer of Hebrews tells us that we should keep our eyes fixed on ourself. No, fixed where? On Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. Where should we keep our eyes? Fixed on Jesus. Say, so how do I do that? Well, Jesus is called the Word of God made flesh, right? So he's the perfect expression of who God is, and God is communicated to us through the Bible as the expression of who he is and what he has done. So how do you keep your eyes fixed on Jesus? Read the Bible. Spend time in the Bible. Learn the Bible. Learn the truth. Meditate on the Scriptures. Even memorize some scripture. It makes all the difference in your life. It affects you. It just powerfully affects you uh, in a positive, positive way. So you want to keep your eyes on Jesus. You want to do that through the word. You want to begin to seek him earnestly in prayer. You want to draw close to him. If you love somebody, do you want to be close to that person? Yeah. So we say we love God, we want to be close to him. So that means you want to spend time with him. Spend time with him, talking, just being with him. Just be with him. My wife and I just like to be together. I'll say to her, babe, just come sit next to me here. Just let's sit together and we'll watch House Hunters together. (laughs) We just like to be together. As we see him more clearly through his word, as we see him more clearly through prayer, 
just being with him as he reveals himself more and more to us. We begin to see ourselves in contrast. We see his beauty and glory. We see our, sins, our sinfulness. We see our limitations. To seek humility, we don't look at ourselves. We don't look at ourselves to find our faults. But we look at God to see his beauty and his perfection. And then in contrast, we see ourselves. It's kind of like when you look, if you're out in the, in the farm areas, you know, and you see a herd of sheep, the sheep look really white, don't they? And then, and then against new fallen snow, those same sheep don't look quite so white, do they? You see the contrast. So we think we're we're doing pretty good until we really get a picture of of God's beauty and his wonder and his majesty. And then so we go, oh, yuck, me. But that's not to depress me. That's to remind me and keep me. I I need him and his grace and his mercy and his provision. So first of all, we need to get the focus off ourselves and onto him. Secondly, we must starve the flesh. Starve the flesh by removing the things on which the flesh feeds. The essence of the fleshly nature, what do you think is the essence of the fleshly nature? Begins with P. Pride, very good. That's the essence of the fleshly nature. When it's all about you, you know you're in the flesh. When it's not about you and it's about him and it's about others, you know you're in the spirit. It's a clear signal. To starve the flesh, then, would be to remove and avoid those things that promote pride. So rather, let me give an example. Rather than looking for praise and compliments and popularity, are those things that we tend to look for? How many want to be popular? How many like praise when you hear it? How many like a compliment? Oh, if you just just say something nice to me, it'd make my day. You're in worse shape than you think. <laughs> See, rather than looking for those things, we should be wary of them. I read someplace that says, beware when men speak well of you. Not that they shouldn't or don't, but you need to beware. Be careful. We should be wary. And yet, at the same time, because our human sinfulness has a way of turning even the best intentions to its advantage, we need to be careful not to make an issue out of avoiding praise and recognition. Oh, no, not me. No, shucks, not me. Because that's the flip side, and that's just that's pride just on the other side. See, the evil, the evil is not being given praise, the evil is seeking it and glorying in it and needing it. Oh man, that's that's when you're miserable. And when without having sought it, we find ourselves being praised or honored, to ungraciously reject 
the recognition also may be an act of pride rather than humility. So you got to walk a narrow line, don't you? A narrow line when you're starving the flesh. And the third principle in coming to humility is simply to ask God for it. David prayed a marvelous prayer. It's a prayer that you and I can echo. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. There is an acknowledgement of our need for God. Asking God for humility. And humility, remember, like every good gift, comes only from God. And he is willing to give it even before we ask. There's no doubt about it. Now, if we know we should have it, and we know now how to get it, how do we know we got it? How do we know that we are genuinely humble? How do we know that we're genuinely poor in the spirit? Well, there's seven markers. Let me give them to you real quickly. Number one, you'll find yourself being much less self-absorbed, much less preoccupied with yourself. You'll find that the fact is that yourself is really becoming nothing and Christ is becoming everything. Paul states this so marvelously in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's not about Paul, it's about Jesus. So you'll find yourself being less and less self-absorbed. Secondly, humility will lead you to be literally lost in the wonder of Christ. You'll be so taken with him. Again, let me read to you Paul's words from 2 Corinthians chapter 3. He says, And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. There's a picture of someone who's lost, lost, if you will, in the wonder of Christ, becoming more and more like him. Thirdly, you'll know that you are gaining humility when you find yourself not complaining about your situation. <laughs> Can I just complain a little bit? Sure, you can complain all you want. But don't claim to be humble. When you're not complaining, no matter how bad the situation is, you are growing in humility. Well, how can you say that? Well, think. Let's give some perspective. Do we know that we deserve worse than anything we can experience in this life? Do we really believe that? Most of you know that my wife and I are challenged with cancer and we are trusting God, standing firm, you know, doing, praying and all the things you do. But our, we know it could be worse. It could be much worse. 
it could be much worse. We don't complain. We say, God, thank you. Thank you that it's not worse. That's critical. That's critical. You see, when you have that mindset, you begin to consider no circumstance to be unfair. Have you ever said this? When tragedies come, why me, Lord? Why me? Or maybe thought it. Rather, no, we will glorify God knowing, as the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, that we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. He goes on to say in verse 18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And this life is full of trials, full of suffering, full of unexpected things that happen to us. It could be worse, couldn't it? God, thank you that it's not worse. Fourthly, we'll find ourselves being more more clearly seeing the strengths and the virtues in other people as well as our own weaknesses and sins. Tragedy is most of the time we look at other people, we tend to see their faults and their failures, and we tend to be somewhat critical of them. But if you're growing in this grace of humility, you will not be looking and seeing those things. You'll be seeing the things that are good in other people, their strengths and their virtues. And then we will be, we will be in humility considering others better than ourselves. We will be honoring one another above ourselves. And fifthly, we'll find ourselves spending much more time in prayer. Just as the physical beggar begs for physical sustenance, so also the spiritual beggar begs for what? Spiritual sustenance. You'll find yourself knocking often at heaven's door because you're continually in need, always in need. Jesus says what? Keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. Because in so doing, as you persevere, you recognize your continual need. And that is evidence of genuine humility, not self-sufficiency, not passivity, not complacency. Number six, as you grow in humility, you will find yourself taking Jesus on his terms not on yours or anyone else's, simply on his terms. We'll not try to have Christ while keeping our pride. We'll not try to have Christ while keeping our pleasures. We'll not try to have Christ while keeping our covetousness or our immoralities. His word alone will be our standard without any modification. His word, his word alone. Yes, Lord. Only when you're truly humble. It won't be, yeah, but, yeah, but, can I just, can I do this? And we know people who just try to just say, yeah, but is, that's kind of unreasonable. Can't I just have, no, 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 it's just, all you need is Christ. And lastly, number seven, we are poor in spirit. We'll find that we're, we'll be praising and thanking God 
for his mercy and his grace far more. Nothing more characterizes the humble believer than abounding gratitude to his Lord and Savior. We've said it before, we'll say it again. You can't thank him enough. You can't praise him enough. We, we sang that earlier this, this, this morning. And we praise you, and we praise you, and we praise you, and we thank you, and we thank you. And Alan had us sing that refrain again and again and again. The more times we sing it, we think, yes, yes, I can't thank you enough. I can't praise you enough. You see, you're poor in spirit when you do that. You know, go, I wish you'd move on to another verse. (laughs) Whoa, that's nasty. (laughs) Those who come to the king in this humility inherit his kingdom. That's what he says. You come to him in this humility, you inherit the kingdom, for the kingdom of heaven is yours. Luke chapter 12, verse 32, tells us that God has gladly chosen to give the kingdom to those who humbly come to him and trust him. He gladly gives the kingdom. And those who the Lord, who come to the Lord with broken hearts, Broken spirits do not leave with broken spirits and broken hearts. They leave with revived spirits and revived hearts. God, I come to you with all my brokenness, my broken heart, my broken spirit. I leave with a revived spirit, a revived heart. That's what he tells us in Isaiah chapter 57. Church, God wants us to recognize our poverty so he can make us rich. He wants us to recognize our lowliness so he can raise us up. And giving up our own kingdom, the poor in spirit inherits God's kingdom. Amen? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Do we need to be reminded of these things? Yes. Did I tell you anything new you didn't know this morning? No. But it bears repeating. True? Father, thank you again. We love you today. Thank you again for your word and your reminders and keeping us mindful of our need for you in every way. Lord, that we be aware of the temptation to self-sufficiency and pride that we are, in fact, spiritual beggars. Not a bad thing, but a a necessary good thing to recognize that. For without that recognition, we know that we can't know you fully. Thank you that you take us, that you love us. Keep your heads bowed for just another moment or two. I want to extend an invitation.